0: Hello Plantpreneurs and welcome to Series 4 of the Plant-Based Business Podcast, brought to you by the team at v I'm Eric Amundsen, your co-host and co-founder at v And I'm Damian Clarkson. You will know me from previous seasons if you listened. I'm also going to be co-hosting the occasional episode in Season 4. I'm excited to welcome Eric to the podcast as we expand v and our reach to listeners around the world. Over the last year, Viewvolution has built the world's leading plant-based and cell ag network and investment marketplace. On the show each week, we explore what it takes to create and scale a plant-based business. We'll interview the best entrepreneurs and investors who are building solutions for a better and kinder world. Thanks for joining us. Tune in each week to be inspired by entrepreneurial stories, tips for fundraising for your business, state of the industry insights from leading investors, and success stories from BeVolutions' new investment marketplace. Hey, Eric here. Thanks for listening. A quick word from our sponsor, Plant Belly. There are so many vegan grocery products out there nowadays, and it's amazing. But with all these options comes a lot of trial and error to find the best of the best. It happens to all of us. You buy something that ends up being a little disappointing. But what if you could have all the best vegan products put together in one place and shop them easily on your phone or from home? That's where plantbelly.com comes in. It's a new online vegan grocery store that delivers highly curated plant-based foods right to your door. Plantbelly has hands down the best selection of outstanding plant-based foods I've ever seen. I especially love that you can shop by Ethos to find brands owned by women or BIPOC makers. I, for example, always search the latest seafood or deli products. It's a great selection. PlantBelly.com is a team of foodies, vegans, and passionate supporters of small batch makers. And they've handpicked only the tastiest plant-based eats to feature on PlantBelly.com. You can use code VVOLUTION to get 20% off your first order at PlantBelly.com. That's V-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N to get 20% off your first order when you visit plantbelly.com. Now back to the show. Eric Onsen here, and today I'm joined by David Benzikin, founder and CEO of Mission Plant and quite a few other projects. David, how's it going today?
1: Very well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So on the show, we like to take it back to the beginning um, tell the listeners a little bit about your background. I'd love to, to hear more about the nonprofit uh, experience, kind of where things started.
1: Yeah. So I became very passionate about uh, social change at a very young age uh, through a couple things. One was uh, Ralph Nader was a really big impact on me. He was a personal friend of my stepfather's and they'd gone to school together and had worked in some nonprofits together and being exposed to such a social change hero, somebody who had, you know, regardless of what we think of his partisan politics, uh, Ralph was responsible or has been responsible for seatbelt laws, airbags, allergen labeling, side effect labeling, lemon laws, uh, you know, airline ticket refunds, uh, you know, improvements on clean water and clean air. Like he's probably saved more lives through consumer environmental protection than any other human being in the West in the last hundred years, at least. So um, you know, real, real hero to me. And growing up with his influence was really special and motivated me a lot. Uh, then in sixth grade, I had an English teacher, Mr. Harmon, who had us read about Paul Robeson, uh, who quickly became another, you know, idol of mine. Paul Robeson, uh, for those who don't know, was uh, the first black man to ever perform on Broadway when he played as Othello. He was famous for singing um, uh, as a double bass with some really famous songs. He was an all-star football player, an All-American. He spoke like 13 languages that he taught himself. Uh, wow. Just unbelievable. And he was on the political side known for having gone to sing first for American soldiers who had gone to fight in the Spanish Civil War um, with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. So really awesome guy, fought on every social change issue ever. And those two really influenced me. And then lastly, I got really into punk music and Uh, Fortunately, some of that music, some is not so politically uh, progressive, (laughs) but some punk music has some really great themes around sustainability and social change and definitely veganism. Um, Sort of very young age, I was exposed to all that. Uh, I quickly got involved in a lot of different social change issues. But the big change for me was the first day of college, actually during student orientation, there was a clubs fair where you go to all the different student clubs and learn Uh Activities you can participate in. And I went to all the activisty club ones and I'd say, Oh, what can we do in your club? And, you know, the anti death penalty club, you know, it was 2002. So the anti death penalty club says, Oh, we'll write letters to President Bush and ask him to stop executing people. And I thought, Great, <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> and I went to the anti war club and they said, Oh, we'll wow. we progress the war. And I'm like, Yeah, okay. And, you know, I believed in all these things and I supported them, but wasn't exactly excited about the prospect that uh, there would be a lot of movement on those issues. And then I went to the animal protection club and uh, the founders said to me, are you vegan? And I said, no, I'm vegetarian. And they said, okay, well, we'll help you go vegan. You'll save this many (laughs) more lives every single year without lifting a finger. And every single person you help us move in that direction will save exponentially more. And for an 18 year old kid to be told that through his own actions, He is empowered to be able to change the world for animals, for health, and for environment with such simple switches. It was life-changing. And I immediately realized that that was one of the issues that I was going to devote myself to because of the social impact I could have.
0: Yeah, I remember walking around the first, you know, at the same sort of college fair and feeling as though there were some things that I was interested in and topics and groups that I could have been interested in, but... It was sort of the same thing where, you know, the sustainability uh, student ran sustainability department was the one that was really like, okay, these are actually actions that I can take and things that actually have impact. So you went on, you 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 went through college and then, you know, the the you know the professional background. Where does that begin from there at the farm sanctuary and um, take us from there?
1: Sure. So in college, I interned or collaborated with just about every animal protection nonprofit under the sun. I worked very closely with Josh Bach at the Humane Society. um, And I interned at Compassion Over Killing and Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and a bunch of different amazing organizations. And uh, after school, I went to work full time in the movement. Uh, I landed at Farm Sanctuary, where I worked for four or five years, um, running uh, first some fundraising efforts with uh, the fundraising development team there. And then moving over to lead the department uh, uh, that was doing campaigns and advocacy, uh, where I was involved in uh, organizing a ballot initiative in Ohio to ban a lot of practices on farms, got to represent Farm Sanctuary in that effort along with Mercy for Animals in HSUS, um, led some corporate campaigns, got to do some lobbying in state uh, legislatures across the country, and did a lot of work to organize our million members uh, to do personal advocacy through behavior change, like adopting a plant-based lifestyle, and also to do advocacy like letter writing campaigns or different things of that nature. Um, It was amazing. And I have so much admiration for and respect for Gene Bauer at Farm Sanctuary and the other leaders who, you know, taught me so much and paved the way. Um, But eventually I realized that I wasn't pursuing uh, impact as much as I could be for two reasons. One reason was that there were so many people vying for those same jobs in advocacy for farm animals, and there were very few positions available. Um, and I realized that I didn't have to do that for that job to get done. Uh, there were many others who were equally capable who could take that on. And at the time when I graduated college, if you wanted to you know, work for this cause, you went to work for an animal nonprofit. That was really the only way that someone could, one could see how to accomplish this. But I started to rethink that. Um, I, I started to first wonder if we were as influential as we could be in changing people's hearts and minds, and more importantly, behaviors about what was on their plates through advocacy and education. I think it's a really important set of tools. But ultimately, I came to realize that for myself, behavior change comes with being given solutions, and not just being told what needs to change and what's wrong with the world. And so I decided that I wanted to figure out how I could make vegan food, which I find to be the solution to so many of our problems, more accessible, more affordable, more delicious, more attractive. And that's how I got to the business side.
0: Yeah. And that brings us to sort of the next part of the conversation. But I think before we go there, you know, do you, you know, do you have any idea what the kind of uh state of the world or state of affairs is with the with the kind of farm sanctuary, for example, and their perception of wow, like how things are now and how the the just massive growth that's happened over the last even just the last three or four years, let alone the last five or ten, you know what is their perception of like um, kind of just the plant-based movement now, how that has impacted them, how that's changed their models, their their growth, their own, fundraising efforts like do you keep in contact have things gotten easier for them is it sort of like they're sort of living the same uh situation as as maybe 15 years ago i mean how, how has what we're all doing on the business side impacted advocacy you know on the
1: back end sure i mean there, a lot has changed in that space uh the first big change in the nonprofit world around farm animal protection of that magnitude was in 2005 when HSUS, the Humane Society of the United States, decided to get involved in farm animal protection. Uh, For a long time, that was not on the agenda there. And when it merged with the Fund for Animals, uh, they formed a factory farming department and they started, you know, putting their significant resources behind promoting animal welfare in farms, but also uh, plant-based eating. And that was a big, big shift when an organization with $160 million or something Mm -hmm. saying, hey, chickens have feelings too. And if we're talking about being humane, we have to include animals on our plate in that conversation. Um, I do know that all these organizations, Farm Sanctuary and others, have doubled in size in in membership and fundraising since I was there a decade plus ago. Um, And uh, I know that they are continuing to do incredible work. I think that... Those organizations are focusing a lot of their time on on advocacy for legislative efforts and for policy change, and that's really important. Ultimately, we do need that change. Um, it's a it's a long haul process because, as we know, a lot of the political uh, a lot of the political power rests in the hands of those who want to protect the status quo, and uh, particularly when it comes to the places where. You know, food policy or animal protection policy would be decided. Uh, if you look at the, you know, the the farm bureaus' leadership and the the agriculture committees in every state or or the you know uh, federal government, um, they're all very very stacked with factory farmers. Um, so it's a long process, but I think they're still making great inroads. And on the corporate side, they've had amazing achievements to get corporations to expand plant based options and. Uh, see some of the worst practices in factory farms. So yeah, I'm very excited for what they're doing. And I think that it's one of the prongs that is so impactful. I will mention also really briefly that a unique uh, tool that Farm Sanctuary and other animal sanctuaries like them have is the ability to introduce people to the animals themselves. And that's so important. You know, when it's a lot harder to uh, make a decision like eating another being when you've looked one in the eye. And so mm. that's, I think, a beautiful aspect of those organizations, how they can share the stories of these incredible sentient beings. I had the privilege of going to Iowa in 2008 with Farm Sanctuary to rescue pigs that were flooded. Uh, wow. Big Midwest, Midwest flood. Yeah. And, um, you know, I saw how they fought for life and I saw how they acted as mothers. A lot of them were pregnant sows who were giving birth in the moments we we found them. And so we saw how protective they were of their babies and and how the kids played together. And it was a beautiful thing. And it really made me appreciate, uh, I was gonna say their humanity, how species is, this? I was gonna say it really made me appreciate <laughs> their their sentience and their and their wow. love and their, um, you know, intelligence. I,
0: I sometimes wonder if I need to have those moments like what you just described that you had in Iowa, you know, I think that maybe you know, the, the advocacy and, 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 uh, that sort of outreach and just being in the trenches, like something I haven't really pursued, but wonder maybe if it's time to do that, to kind of get that fuel. Cause sometimes I forget, you know, I think I've maybe mentioned this to you that, you know, uh, joining the evolution a year ago and being here and, and doing what we're doing, you know, there's a lot of days where I forget the mission, I forget at kind of the bigger picture and I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, impact more startups and, and kind of just run a company and you forget, you forget what you're doing. So I wonder if more yeah. entrepreneurs and people in general in the industry should, you know, have those really, really big moments.
1: Well, I think that, I think that the work we're doing on the business side is really important in and of itself and is extremely important. Uh, integral to the change, to the mission change, or the social change we're trying to achieve. So I wouldn't discount it. Uh, in terms of remembering the mission and being passionate about it, that's extremely important. And that's what drives me and it gets me so excited to know that. Um, you know, thinking that every single time somebody chooses one of these products instead of an animal based product, that that's saving a life and reducing climate change and everything else. Um, if you want to be re inspired, if you ever burnt out or anything, I think visiting a farm animal sanctuary is an unbelievable way to feel grounded again um, but I also haven't been very involved in advocacy in the last decade in a direct sense because my advocacy now is through the business side and I don't think that's bad I think that it's a different set of tools I think we need people in every sphere but I don't think we need to fear that we're not doing good by not doing the using the same tools as those on more on the advocacy side And sometimes advocating for the food itself can be can be, more impactful if we're not drowning in a message mm-hmm. distracting. So I tend to lead with my business side, even though we've talked quite a bit about, you know, the grounding I have and the reasons I'm in this space, I really tend to lead with the food and, and, and the the business side because I think that a lot of people will be moved more effectively that way.
0: We could probably talk about advocacy all day, but at some point you you shifted. Do you think that you were always destined to become an entrepreneur? And um, can you tell us about that shift from the nonprofit side of things to sort of your new path? And when were you ready to push your impact?
1: Yeah, I think I was always focused on pushing impact and every decision I made in my career was about how I could maximize impact strategically. And so when I did advocacy, I was trying to find the tools within advocacy that'd be the most impactful. When I did fundraising for nonprofits is because I realized that to have the greatest impact those nonprofits needed to be well funded. And so that became a goal of mine to figure out how to help them grow. Um, and when I came to the business side, it was the same thing. You know, I've always thought about uh, working backwards from an end goal and whether it's you know launching you know, this food company on date X or whether it's raising this much money or whether it's passing this law or whatever it may be, it's always been about that strategic approach to things. Um, I don't know if I was destined to be an entrepreneur so much. Uh, I was destined to be a strategist and to be focused on maximizing impact. And this is the way that I realized I could do that. Um, it definitely allows me, I mean, I love it. And when I first, if you had told me 10 years earlier that I would get into business one day and got (laughs) even finance one day, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, but I feel privileged that I get to do what I do every day. It allows me to participate in so many different things and uh, every day is a new, a new education. So I I love it. And uh, it's, it's the greatest thing I've ever done.
0: So you started, um, you took kind of your experience and you, um, you started plant-based solutions.
1: Yeah. In 2010, I started plant-based solutions. It's a, it's a uh, strategic brand management agency for plant-based products I had it for nine years before I sold it. Um, In that time, we had about 150 clients and we worked on go-to-market strategies, um, launching new products, brand positioning, helping companies understand their consumer audience and refine their sales and marketing tactics and uh, calendars and budgets and all those kinds of things. Um, You know, so much of what entrepreneurs have to think about in the day-to-day is tactical, right? It's how do I sell? How do I do this thing? And what I always want to remind people of is that the time they're spending on executing, uh, if it's void of strategy, can be really dangerous and can really uh, be a waste of money and possibly even not just ineffectual, but actually detrimental. Um, You know, if uh, people are really turned off by flavor X or price point Y, and you're pushing that, you're losing opportunities to be successful by launching the right flavor or selling at the right price. And so the strategy that goes into understanding what will work and why and and choosing the right product, choosing the right consumer target, choosing the right channel of sale, food service, retail, et cetera, all these kinds of things are incredibly important.
0: And in 2010, this must've been like, you know, all all of these things must be kind of amplified being a a new category, plant-based foods in general, you know, like the clients that you were working with from 2010 to throughout the, you know, uh, throughout those years that, you know, everything was just probably a lot harder to figure out.
1: Yeah, I think it's still that way. I mean, every product, right? I'm speaking to a company that's making sunny side up and poached eggs and, that's never happened before. So how do we how do we make how do we launch that in the market and educate consumers about that existence? Or you know, I launched a plant based alternative to raw tuna. Um, you know, you didn't see sushi chefs experiencing that before. So it's it's still that way. It's really exciting. It's getting a little easier as as the market is so much more open to these products, but certainly. It was an exciting intellectual journey and uh, exercise every day trying to figure out what would work and learning along the way.
0: Recently, I think within the last couple of weeks, the Good Food Institute uh, reported that there are now about 90 plant based seafood companies worldwide. Uh, but can you tell us about co founding Ocean Hugger Foods, one of the first plant based seafood companies? Um, uh, the first um, you know one of the first fish products I ever had was the Gardine fishless fillet and it was just like I can't believe this so, yeah so just curious uh, tell us about launching that and I have a few other uh, follow up questions
1: about Ocean Hugger. Yeah speaking of Gardine, I mean their crab cakes and fish fillets are still oh, my favorite so products in there uh, I eat them all the time um, so yeah in 2016 17 I got the entrepreneurial bug to you know, I was yes. I was so focused on running the the agency that I hadn't gotten to get in the weeds a lot. You know, I had a I had a team that was working with all the clients a lot more. I wasn't getting in the weeds a lot, and I decided I wanted to try my hand on the operator side. You know, I had been advising companies for so long on strategy, I hadn't actually done it myself, and I started to feel like a bit of a like a bit of a uh, a hypocrite there. So uh, I was really excited to find an opportunity to launch something new. And in mapping out the industry, I felt like plant-based seafood was the untapped market. And um, I decided that was the category I wanted to go into. So I set about going out to find a product that I could bring to market. And I heard about this incredible chef, James Corwell, uh, one of only 60 some odd certified master chefs in the world, And runner up in the Bocuse d'Or, I mean, really one of the world's best chefs. Wow. Um, I heard about a a product he had developed in his kitchen, but he was calling it tomato sushi. And he was making raw tuna uh, out of tomatoes. And I thought, that sounds like the craziest, most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. And it's either disgusting or amazing. I got to try it.
0: If it works,
1: I got to be part of this. And so that was the background. So um, I tasted the product and I met Chef and uh, he's amazing. Uh, The product was amazing. And I was really excited about the ability to, it was the first time I had experienced a product in the uh, center plate protein category that was so clean label and so so whole food based. And simultaneously provided that incredible, very realistic experience. You know, I'm not against having products that bring the magic of science to food. It's right, you know, every single food we eat is is has that, including all the products we think are super "quote unquote" natural. Um, but I do recognize that there's a desire from consumers to have products that are that are um, you know clean label and whole food in, in their in their foundation, and from the uh, for the plant-based seafood category in particular, it's one where you know, most people who eat more plant-based are doing so for health, much more than, so than for animal welfare, slightly more so than for sustainability. And when I thought about the plant-based seafood category, I realized that it'd be a little bit more challenging to sell people on plant-based seafood on a pure health message, not because plant-based seafood isn't healthy, but because they tend to think that seafood is healthy. Of course. So, we all know in this community that, you know, seafood is usually laden with mercury and PCBs and all kinds of parabens and toxins, and is, you know, is unsafe, not just for pregnant women, but for a lot of people. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I realized this was gonna be a challenge. And so keeping making a product that was really healthy and clean and delivered on that unbelievable texture was exceptionally exciting for me. So, uh, Chef Corwell and I formed a, formed a business together. We rebranded from Tomato Sushi to Ocean Hugger Foods and our product Ahimi. And we launched it in 2017 nationwide in Whole Foods uh, sushi bars and then grew from there.
0: You know, I heard um, you, you just talked about sort of that clean label and and how amazed you were that, that you found a product that was just so simple yet so amazing what do you see as sort of some of the next steps in the plant-based seafood industry? I mean, because I think that it is a little bit particular, but maybe it's not, maybe it's sort of uh, similar to the other categories, but is it tech? Is it it just more competition to just push the innovation? Is it uh, it just better teams? I mean, what is it that's going to take it to the next level where, you know, uh, we have these two giant, you know, burger giants, uh, but it feels and maybe this is a broader question. It feels like some of the other categories are sort of lagging behind a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think it's yes is the answer to all of the above. Uh, but, you know, seafood does have slightly different nuances and how it can be approached from a uh, from a product standpoint and from a marketing standpoint, like I said, there's a difference in how people view fish from a health perspective. It's a similar challenge for a product like eggs. You know, a lot of people think of eggs as healthy. So nobody, nobody is thinking that bacon Hmm. is healthy or that ribs are healthy. And a lot of people recognize now that, you know, processed red meats in general are unhealthy. But when it comes to some of those lighter proteins like seafood and like eggs, um, it, there's a different challenge to have. So we have to be cognizant of that and and think about how we spread the message. Uh, and then from a textural and product standpoint, you know, unlike other unlike other meat products, um, you know, the texture of fish is very different. The flakiness is completely different than the uh, much tougher chewier texture that you get out of a poultry or pork or beef product and so that has some technical problems that we have or challenges that we haven't experienced before and i still think there is a lot of room to go and a lot of opportunity there are so many companies tackling it now on creating that kind of flaky tear in, 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 a, in a plant-based seafood product so uh, it's an extremely exciting time you know, the category is tiny. I mean, we're talking about under $20 million in sales in the U.S. for the entire category. Uh, that's why I laugh when, you know, um, whenever a new plant-based category comes to comes to pass, the traditional animal-based industry, you know, kind of splits where half of it really gets it and jumps on board and lines up right behind it and wants to invest in and be part of that innovation. Um, you know, when I had Ocean Hugger, I was approached by the CEOs and chairman of the three largest tuna companies in the world. And I was flown out to speak at some of the, you know, I went to a conference with CEOs of seafood companies where I was the only non-seafood company CEO there. And I was the keynote speaker and, you know. Man, what a torch to be carrying. Well, it was was amazing. uh, And the experience was after I gave my talk, I had half the room wanna throw tomatoes at me. And half the room lining up to give me money. And I think that's what happens whenever there's a new space, but there's a lot, there's a big battle going on in the, in the seafood industry right now about the plant-based seafood industry and the threat we pose. And I think it's hilarious, Um, you know, because uh, certainly some are really lining it up. I mean, you know, Bumblebee has invested heavily in supporting good catch and you're seeing that um, uh, Thai union has launched plant-based products. So you are seeing some real movement, but uh, yeah, when I hear folks freaking out, I just think to myself, "This means we're on the right track and that we're and that we're winning, even if we know that the reality is we're just a speck of dust so far." Um, but they see the future, right? Plant-based milks now represent between 13 and 15 of all fluid milk sales in the U.S. because variety, affordability, and um, you know, effective storytelling, uh, diversity of product—all these things made consumers aware that they could have a great experience without the environmental animal and health negative impacts of the animal products. And the same will come to pass in every other category over time. And so that's why I think people are quicker to get scared. I think nobody until the late 90s, early 2000s, nobody in the dairy industry was scared of soy milk, right? Um, But I do remember in the the mid-aughts when there was a Dairy Ad Council ad that came out on TV of a woman... Taking a non dairy milk, a nondescript non dairy milk that said shake before serving and starts shaking it. And she gives her kids nightmares because he thinks she looks like a monster as she's shaking it. And I thought to myself, this means we're winning because they're not (laughs) ignoring us anymore. They're actually scared. You got to find that in the talk. That's that's hilarious. Um, And so I feel like it's the same thing. What I want to say to industry is, we're not your enemy, <laughs> we are a solution to the problem, especially in the seafood industry. The fact is the ocean's running out of fish. And right. if you want to protect your livelihoods, then supporting it, renewable products, you know uh, or products from renewable resources that are not depleted and they're not destroying our, our livelihoods and our, and our lives, uh, like depleting our oceans is the answer. And let's work together. You have the supply chains, you have the distribution, Our products fit really well into that. Let's be be hand-in-hand into changing the food system.
0: Eric here. Thanks for tuning in. I want to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor, Moonshot Collaborative. What's the single biggest factor in the success of your business? Your customers! And without any feedback and buy-in from them on your most important business decisions, it's easy to make expensive mistakes. And that's where Moonshot Collaborative comes in. They're a consumer research firm focused exclusively on actionable, affordable insights on plant based consumers. As a member of the plant based business community, I know the challenges that plant based and alternative protein startups face when it comes to consumer research. The options are usually super expensive and not really focused on the people actually buying those plant based products. But Moonshot Collaborative offers a solution uniquely tailored to startups in this space. Not only is their research cost-effective and action-oriented, but every member of their panel has purchased a plant-based meat, egg, or dairy product in the 90 days prior to signing up. Moonshot Collaborative has a solution to fit any budget. You can choose from custom research or multi-client surveys that offer group pricing, or maybe you need in-depth reports on the beliefs and behaviors of these key consumers. So if you're a startup looking to learn more about your customers, you can use code VEVOLUTION to get 20% off your first five survey questions with Moonshot Collaborative. That's V-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N, VEVOLUTION to get 20% off your first five survey questions. Just head to MoonshotCollaborative.com to get started. What are you doing now? What does Mission Plan as a company do? Um, I, think, I think you're still trying to solve the same problem. Uh, but tell us you know you have four branches sort of under Mission Plant so I think we should go through kind of each of them one by one but um, yeah uh, broadly you know what happened and kind of where is Mission Plant now?
1: Sure so uh, after selling Ocean Hugger I was trying to figure out what to do next and Mission Plant was my opportunity to uh, I, I call it my playground it was my opportunity to play in lots of different areas, Um, Mm -hmm. but there are Mm -hmm. four branches. So the first is an angel fund. I invest, you know, at the pre-seed and seed levels in uh, plant-based and alternative protein companies that are currently or planning to come to the U S because that's where I can be more valuable to them. Um, And uh, that's a lot of fun. I've gotten to invest in seven or eight exceptional companies and in the last like 12 to 18 months. And then uh, the second Part of the business is my consulting practice. Uh, unlike in the agency days, I'm not trying to build a full fledged agency with a bunch of people. I really <laughs> missed working hands on with the clients and work with working hands and on with the companies rather than like focusing on running the agency and constantly developing new business. I'd like to be in the weeds with the clients, solving their problems, and so that's what I'm doing now. And then the last two pieces are. There were two areas that i found we needed major growth and improvements in, in our industry throughout my years wearing different hats as investor consultant entrepreneur one was the lack of really good data and consumer insights in our space um, to help companies perfect their strategies and be as as uh, efficient and effective in what they launch how much they you know where they sell it who they target etc cetera, etc cetera. And the second piece was how we respond to the uh, shift in retail to online as a community and how we recognize that consumers are there and we need to be there if we want to get our products into those hands, particularly during the pandemic at a time where people's ability and willingness to try new products, to spend a lot of time in discovery in a retail store and to buy new products has been more difficult. So... Those are the four areas of the business. Happy to speak on any of them. Uh,
0: as far as Mission Plant as a fund, um, you know, there's so, it's it's so great to hear from investors like what what they look for. And I think there's trends, and I think there's a lot of similarities. But uh, I think every investor is analyzing certain things differently. Um, what is what is something that you lean on the most when making an, you know a decision on investment? Um, you know, I think there's. I'm assuming there's probably two or three you know, really high level um, things that you analyze, but there's gotta be one that's just, that's got that box has to be checked for you, for you to even start the due diligence process.
1: Yeah, uh, there are two that have to be checked for me to start the due diligence process. One is team and one is product. And um, you know, that sounds so obvious and everybody says it, but it's extremely important to me. When it comes to team, I need to feel uh, that the team I'm looking at is passionate is hungry, is um, humble, maybe most importantly. Mm. And that's really the biggest, the single biggest attribute I look for in a founder is humility. Um, And I say that as as a founder who has made a lot of mistakes and sometimes pivoted when I should and sometimes didn't and uh, suffered the consequences. (laughs) And as somebody who recognizes that, You know, we're all learning every day, and we all need to work together to maximize impact. And there's no room for egos and and arrogance in that. Um, So, yeah, team is extremely important. And then, product, you know, I'm a foodie, I love food, and I need to believe in what I get behind. So, I don't consult for products I don't like, and I don't uh, invest Mm. in companies whose products I don't uh, think can make a difference.
0: We um, at Evolution, we have a new investor member who um, has been angel investing for quite a long time. They, I mean, this is this is kind of essentially the new wave. Like this is exactly who we want to support. They uh, are newly vegan and they want to start investing into the space, and we can be that place where that happens. Uh, what advice to would you give new investors to the space who are new to plant based, sell ag, etc. What what I mean, if you had to provide, you know, a sentence or two of of advice to those new investors of what to look out for and uh, how how to not get lost.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, welcome. And uh, it's a very exciting, exciting place to be. You know, one thing that you'll find as a new investor in this space, which is really beautiful, is that I think unlike any other industry, the vast majority of entrepreneurs and investors in this space are coming from a beautiful place of heart and, Mm collaboration rather than competition. Um, That's everybody I know who comes from traditional industries is always really surprised by that. And I think it's awesome. Um, You know, my first investor in ocean hugger was the founder of good catch. (laughs) And Hmm. uh, that's not an uncommon thing in the industry. We're all in it for the same reasons. We all recognize that the pie needs to grow. And that means that we are hands in hands to, 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 Uh, bring products to the market that will move, you know, communities together. So that's one really great thing in terms of uh, in terms of advice I can give is if you don't have a traditional, if you don't have traditional investment experience in CPG and FMCG can, you know, uh, consumable goods or in food, uh, regardless of whether it's in plant based or not, I highly, highly recommend that you uh, educate yourself on that or surround yourself with people who can really help you there. I think that uh, we do have a large influx of folks from the investment world, uh, some with wonderful uh, ethical motivations, some with financial motivations, which you know what, I'm not against either, if it means that they're moving moving this space forward. Um, But what scares me is when we have investors who don't understand the business model that we operate in this industry and who are investing blindly, based on factors that aren't realistic. So for example, mm. one of the reasons that I've seen, and we've all talked about in this community, very high valuations and companies yeah. that are uh, valued at, you know, at numbers that they're not gonna realize in sales for many, many years to come is because we have investors coming from uh, tech, uh, SaaS, real estate and other industries where things can grow exponentially really quickly and understanding the life cycle of an investment in food and CPG is so important. It's a very slow industry. Right. Right. And the risks are greater um, in terms of the ability for a company to struggle. I'm not trying to dissuade people from being here, but if you want to be an investor who will succeed and who will support your entrepreneurs and portfolio companies, you have to be patient with your capital and you have to cut them some slack when it takes time to scale. And <laughs> you need to push back when they give you unrealistic projections because they're chasing you know, the money to be able to succeed. And you can say, no, you're not going to get $3 million in six months. And that's okay. And <laughs> let's recalculate these numbers to be realistic. And let's project what is actually going to happen because look, I do believe you will be a $100 million or $500 million company. It won't be tomorrow. And I'm willing to join you on this journey. Um, the fact is launching a food product means having to not just uh, sell a good. It means having to develop a recipe, scale a recipe, manufacture consistently and safely over and over again at massive volumes, buy ingredients and figure out how to make them consistent. Um you know, handle distribution across oceans or at least across states or large swaths of area with often with refrigerated and freezing capabilities, having to market to all of the trade partners, distributors, brokers, retailers, food service operators, wow. them to carry a product and having to market to consumers to get them to buy the product off the shelf. Because getting on the shelf, I love when people say to me, oh, look, I'm so excited. I got into Whole Foods and I say, well, now get off the shelf you know, that's when you're really successful and it (laughs) It sells through. Um, So, uh, you know, it is a very difficult business. It's not like tech where you develop an app as, you know, one person in your bedroom in the dark of night, you know, coding, and then you...
0: Oh, come on. It's not always the dark of night.
1: (laughs) And then you press go and suddenly, you know, you have... 40 million freemium users, right? This is a different-
0: Yeah, I mean, Vvolution at the end of the day has really pivoted over the last year. And now we're, I mean, we're a SaaS company. That's the, the umbrella, you know? And I cannot imagine the challenges that, you know, the founders that we work with go through. Just like that list is not even the full list that you went through. Um, I think onto another branch of Mission Plant, can you tell us about bringing startups who are looking to enter the U.S. market? What exactly that looks like, and some of the challenges that they're facing, and kind of how Mission Plant helps companies with that?
1: Yeah, so I've I've fallen into this into this uh, niche consulting role. You know, I, I I can work with any companies that need strategic help uh, in the CPG space, but in particular, I've found this this whole this gap in the opportunity in the market where there are companies outside of the U S particularly in geographically small countries or small population countries, but that are flush with innovation uh, countries like Israel and a lot of countries in Eastern Europe and other places where the markets themselves are a small and B maybe underdeveloped. Now Israel is an exception because it's really small, but it's super developed as a plant-based market. Um, but a lot of these Eastern European markets as well, right? There's just not a huge Opportunity to build a plant based company today, um, but you still have unbelievable innovation and access to capital. And so I get approached by companies in, in, in other countries who want to come to the US. They don't have to be in those parts of the world. Many are from Western Europe or Africa or other places as well. But there are companies that realize the US is the place for them. And they know they don't have boots on the ground here. And they understand that this is a geographically huge country with extremely diverse populations and very, very complex uh, distribution models, very uh, complex, difficult to manage uh, retail partnerships, all kinds of things. And so, you know, I work with these companies to help them approach this market, everything from deciding how they're going to manufacture and supply the product to uh, how they're going to raise the capital they need to enter this market to, you know, what I talked about before, you know, should they sell into food service or into retail? Should they sell as an ingredient to other food manufacturers? Should they target, you know, uh, baby boomers or Gen Zs? Uh, Should they uh, start in one geography or another? Um, You know, what should their brand be? And which of their many products that they have fantasies about or that they've developed actually (laughs) sense for the US market, you know, these kinds of questions. So I work with companies on setting their entire groundwork and strategy, and help them to build the full time team that will launch them into the market. it's a, it's a dream because every single day I get to work on a new challenge and opportunity because each product is so unique. So some are really meant to work in food service or retail or industrial sales. And, um, it's, it's awesome.
0: <laughs> I love how jacked you are about it. Uh, so you have recently launched the newest vegan marketplace plant belly. Tell us about that. Why did you decide to start plant belly and yeah. How's, how's that been going?
1: Plant Belly has been awesome. Um, so we are a, a U.S.-based direct-to-consumer online store, full-service retailer, and we specialize. Uh, you know, one of the things we focus on is really being extremely curated in what we carry, so that we carry only the best. Um, and a, and we have a much smaller assortment than some others because of that. We're really
0: focusing
1: mm. on highlighting the products that we're most excited about and often small batch products that are, you know, from smaller brands that are not as well known because we don't want to be also ran of whole foods or something, right? We're a different business. Um, it's been awesome. It's a business that I haven't learned, I haven't known well in the past, but I knew was necessary because like everybody else during the pandemic, I started shifting my buying to online. And I found that my experience when I shopped elsewhere online was um, not as optimal as I hoped. Um, you know, as a consumer, you know, going to a lot of sites, it was difficult to find the products that I wanted either in terms of the breadth of products or in terms of the curation and quality curation. You know, I, I, I thought about what it would be like if my mom or my sister or a non-plant-based friend would go to a site and see like, 80 different kinds of plant-based burgers. Oh, like, yeah. Uh-oh, what do I do, you know? Am I wor- is it worth spending the time to discover and taste a lot of crap and like, you know, be disappointed and, you know, I felt like that'd be a turnoff. And so, um that was one thing. And then from the brand side, you know, we try to differenti- differentiate ourselves by being really exceptional for both our stakeholders, our consumers and our suppliers. For the brand side, we felt it was really important that we act as a full service retailer, we ship products, we store products, we, you know, do all those services. Cause for a lot of brands, it's not, it's not feasible for them to do drop ship to customers through a marketplace. And I mean, no disrespect to any others in the space, there are wonderful platforms that are doing that. And often they're giving opportunities to brands that may not be on a platform like ours, because they're willing to provide a space for everybody, which is great. Um, But we felt it was really important that we take that burden off the brands and secondly, we don't buy anything on consignment. We buy everything wholesale, uh, full service. So we pay the brands. We believe in the products we buy. If they don't sell, we, we take the risk. And um, you know, in the food industry, you have to spend a lot of money up front to go and buy your ingredients and manufacture your products. And when you sell your product, you need that cash as quickly as possible to reinvest mm cash flow is huge. even for very very large businesses in this space, cash flow can be their biggest challenge. And so um, you know we felt it was really important that we provide brands the the respect and the support that they need by um, buying from them wholesale rather than consignment. so for consumers we aim to be a uh, breath of fresh air, a curated set of only the best stuff where they're going to feel light and excited and fun. We're going to love everything they're tasting and with exceptional uh, customer service and product fulfillment. And for the brands, we want to be their friend that's going to enable them not just to sell, but also to drive trial, discovery, um, awareness among consumers and uh, to be celebrated for the amazing work they do.
0: one of the, one of the last questions I have, and then we'll go into sort of this uh, quick fire questions to end everything. You and I talked about this uh, the other day. Uh, I've been with Evolution for about a year now, uh, and you know, just a few years into my entrepreneurial journey. Um, and it just feels like this comes up a lot, this I, this idea of competition in our space. You and I talked about, as an example, uh, the, just just egg just foods and the the actual market size that they have, and just how much more we need to go? Can you kind of like, run the audience through this idea of competition in the plant based space, keeping your head down, and who we are really focused on here? And then tell us about the about just foods as as sort of that high level example, because I thought that was just brilliant when we were talking about that.
1: Sure. So, you know, when we think about the opportunities that are in front of us from a financial standpoint or from an impact, impact standpoint, right? About 1% of the U.S. population and similar percentages in Western Europe and other places is vegan. Somewhere around 5 or 6% is vegetarian, lacto vegetarian. And then you've got this massive group, so anywhere between 15 and 40%, depending on where you look at data and what country, that is flexitarian or reducitarian or whatever you want to call it, looking to reduce their animal-based product intake and increase their plant-based product intake. And so if I want to shift dollars towards my company, am I going to try to take market share from the person that's successfully aiming for that 1% or the one that's successful or, <laughs> or, or all the millions of dollars that are going to the 40%, right? Um, I'm not interested in fighting over you know, the, the sliver uh, with vegans, right? Um, that's not where I'm going to make money. And it's not where we're going to make impact. Getting somebody to switch from one plant-based burger to another doesn't do anything for animals, environment, or health. And so really understanding that the real competition is uh, the products that we aim to replace. You know, People talk about doing well by doing good. And uh, if you have a social enterprise that is aiming to do that, I think the most important thing is that your product be a net good on the thing it's replacing, right? Whether it's a product or service, if it is displacing something that is less good in the world, you are good. And that's how I felt about ocean hugger and everything I do. Every time I sell one of these items and it goes to somebody and they they, instead of putting that fish or that bacon or whatever, on the plate, right. they choose this, they are saving lives, including their own. And so, um, when I hear about competition, you know, I kind of laugh because we have a lot of competition, but it's not on our side. Let's target together to shift hearts and minds and bellies towards plants. And that means helping people uh, who would be eating the animals instead doing this. Um, secondly, you know, in a store, there's a, there's a concept of a brand block or, or, or of uh, facings or right? how much space you have on the shelf. It's not just true for a product or a brand. It's also true for a category, right? If you go to most supermarkets today, at best, you'd have a couple skews of plant-based seafood total. So if I want to make that category grow, am I going to do it by replacing those on the shelf? No, I need them to be on the shelf and I need to be next to them because unless there's at least four, five, six, 10 products there, consumers are never even going to notice it. There are 60,000 SKUs, 60,000 different products in large format supermarkets. So we need these sections to be the size like the non-dairy milk space has gotten where you can't just walk past it and not notice it. That means the more products, the merrier. And that as consumers try different products, every product can appeal to a different person. No product can be perfect for everybody. And so having 80 different kinds of plant-based milks is how we make sure that everybody can find one they love. You know, there are so many plants we've yet to discover. That is our power, is that we have Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, so many countless species of fungi and microalgae and land plants and everything else that we can use to create exceptional sensory, functional, nutritional experiences. And by having as many products out there as possible, that's how we're going to win that game. Whenever somebody tastes something and says, oh, I now know it's possible to have an X that tastes good. It means we win. Burger King and McPlant. Um, I was recently asked by uh, the Food Institute in an interview uh, what I thought about McPlant growing its, uh, Mc- McDonald's growing the number of locations carrying its McPlant and what that means for Burger King. And I said that just like the soda wars between Coke and Pepsi, yeah, every time McPlant wins, Burger King wins with the BK veggie. And that's true for all of us. Um, I think with just what we were talking about was just the fact that uh, you know people see that company is so dominant in that market, but it's still a very small category. Plant-based eggs is a tiny category, and so you know if new plant-based egg companies are coming out and saying, "Oh, just as the Goliath here, we need to, we need to," you know, and I've heard them, it. they're missing the point. Right. Yeah. I mean, the entire plant-based egg category in the U.S. is significantly smaller than 100 million dollars for the whole category. The animal-based egg industry is trillions. And so, what are we really doing if we're, you know, fighting at the margins? There, we need to be thinking about for all the people who have not changed their consumption to just if I'm a new plant-based egg product. What can I offer and how and to whom that will get somebody new that has not been moved already to make that switch? Because that's growing the market for all of us.
0: We've covered a lot today. I appreciate you being here. Um, You're just kind of this gamut of of experience and and passion. And I appreciate it so much. And so I have this quick fire session to end things for you before before we finish. Um, So I'm going to ask you like six questions, Um, just answer them pretty much immediately as you can with one sentence. Are you ready? Yes. First question, why do you get up in the morning?
1: Delicious food and changing the world with every moment that I work on the things I love to do.
0: What one resource or factor has had the biggest impact on your business so far?
1: Uh, Great people.
0: What are top three or so books or podcasts that you would recommend for entrepreneurs?
1: Um, The E-Myth which stands for The Entrepreneur Myth, which I think is an exceptionally important book to read if you want to understand if you are really meant to be an entrepreneur or not. Hmm. Uh, the second one would be um, Seth Goldman's Mission in a Bottle. And the third one I say would be either The, two, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing or Raising the Bar by Gary Erickson about uh, Cliff Barr and his experience there.
0: What do you know now that you wish you knew when you started?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't even start to list all the things that I've learned and all the mistakes that I've made. Uh, That could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but. Right.
0: um, Revolution's mistakes you've made podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think one thing I've learned is to have faith in myself, you know, very early in this industry, I was uh, insecure about my experiences or about what I would know how to do. And I realized that some of my biggest strengths are the fact that I'm a consumer and that I taste and that I like a consumer and sometimes for marketing or strategy, that's actually the most important thing is to understand like the consumer rather than like a, you know, rather than like a wonk. And, uh, the other thing is knowing that it's okay to learn something didn't work and to pivot.
0: What's the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome so far?
1: Well, uh, I mentioned that I sold Ocean Hugger, uh, but what I didn't go into, which a lot of people know, is that uh, we faced a lot of struggles. We had a lot of yeah. success. And unfortunately, we were 100% food service facing. So even when we were selling in stores like Whole Foods, we were in the prepared su- prepared food section, like the sushi bars or poke stations and things. And Uh, That meant that when the pandemic came, the the floor fell out from under us. And so Ah. that was a very uh, difficult, emotional uh, experience. I learned a lot from it. Um, I feel so grateful that we were able to find a new home for the business and that it will will, uh, be relaunching soon and live on. Um, And I feel privileged to have had the experience I did with Chef and the team that we built and getting to help hopefully paved the way for a growing and amazingly robust and exciting plant-based seafood industry. But it certainly was a big challenge emotionally and otherwise.
0: What do you do to keep yourself sane?
1: Spend time with my family, my wife and my son, Um, watch crappy TV that allows (laughs) me to numb my brain um, and eat delicious food.
0: Well, um, I hope to see you in New York soon. I appreciate you so much just being uh, a mentor to me and probably so many other founders. I wish you all the success in the world with Plant Belly and everything that you're doing and excited to keep working with you. Thank you so much for being on the Plant-Based Business Podcast and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for having me. Congrats on your new role and I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Thanks, David. Hello, Eric here, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Plant-Based Business Podcast brought to you by us here at Vevolution. We're building the world's leading plant-based and satellite community and marketplace. Head on over to www.vevolution.com to join our marketplace of investors and startups building solutions for a brighter future. In 2021, more than 25 startups secured partial or full round funding on vVolution. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review. And please consider sharing it on your preferred social media channels. It really helps more people discover the positive stories we're sharing from around the world. Please give us a shout and tag us when you tell others about the podcast. You can find us on all social media channels at Veevolution. And you can email us at hello at com if you want to reach out. We love hearing from our listeners. As always, thank you to Bridie Allison Child, who edits the podcast, and all of our guests and you, our listeners, for supporting the show. See you next time.